children's sermon. We're back in 2 Corinthians again today, although after today there'll be a time when we won't be in 2 Corinthians. I'll be out of town the next two weeks and Philip Rice will be preaching. And then I'll be just back three weeks from today, but he'll still be preaching. And then even after that, I'm going to take a little break from 2 Corinthians until September, I think. Um, mainly because the next section is something that I, I hate to preach to a summer congregation because it's, there's, it's so important. Anyway, not that the people who come are unimportant, but because so many people are out of town. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. And the sermon title is The Paradoxes of Christian Living. There are many paradoxes of the Christian life, things which in the eyes of the world don't match up, don't seem to go together. But the mind of Christ is different than the thinking of the world. And Jesus constantly said very surprising things, things which violated the patterns of normal human thought, like love your enemies, like if any man wants to be great, he must become the servant of all. Like the first shall be last. Now in this section of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been, gives us this long list, 27 items, which are the context in which he is commending the gospel. The first nine we talked about a few weeks ago, they were the hardships in the midst of which Paul honored Christ. The second nine were fruits of the Spirit displayed in his life in the midst of those hardships. And then this morning, the third nine is a list of paradoxes which characterize his ministry and which also characterize the Christian life. So let's read 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to read the whole section 3 to 10, but today we're just focusing on 8 to 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And here's today's passage. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 
Now, of these nine, three are pairs that are synonymous. So combining those two into one, we have six points to cover this morning. The first, then, the first of these points is through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. On the one hand, Paul received much honor and appreciation in response to his gospel ministry. Folks who'd never met him before became attached to him and felt indebted to him for the rest of their lives, for he had brought them the living the message of hope in Christ. He'd shown them the path of freedom and forgiveness and fellowship with God. He who had been the arch enemy of God's people had become their great hero. And yet, on the other hand, by those who opposed Christ's message, Paul was treated with disdain, slander, and abuse. They went to great lengths to suppress his ministry and his message, and even to try to kill him. And the opponents of Christ had a special abhorrence for Paul because in their minds he had betrayed them. He had been one of them, and he turned against them. It should not surprise us that Paul was met with such contrasting responses. Jesus Christ himself was the most loved and the most hated person who ever lived. And his followers can expect nothing less. He himself said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do for my name's sake. That's John 15. Paul glorified Christ in the midst of honor and dishonor, slander and praise. The praise did not go to his head. The slander did not cast him into despair. His successes did not make him think too highly of himself. His failures did not make him feel useless and hopeless. We tend to think that our struggle comes when we are dishonored or slandered. We tend to think that it's fine when we're honored or praised. But success and popularity can be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than humiliation and failure. The second point. Paul was commending the truth of the gospel when we are treated as impostors and yet are true. Just because you're sincerely preaching the truth of Christ it doesn't mean you won't be accused of being an imposter. Though Paul preached the gospel with utmost sincerity and scrupulously spoke the truth to his own peril, yet those who opposed him often accused him of speaking lies and deceiving the people. 
And when you're pouring out your life and endangering your life to minister the gospel to others, it's deeply painful when people accuse you of being a fake. Once again, Paul was having the same experience our Lord had had. He was accused, our Lord was accused of doing miracles by the power of the devil, not by the power of God. And in John 7, 12, some said of him, he leads the people astray. And he was called a deceiver in Matthew 27, 63. If the one who is the truth incarnate was maligned as a deceiver, it shouldn't surprise us when the same false accusation is leveled at us. It is bound to happen to those who speak the truth of Christ. The question is, how are we going to handle it? Does our response to this false accusation provoke us to anger and retaliation? Or are we able to turn the other cheek? Do we follow the example of Paul who says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Christ commended the gospel by the way he acted when he was mistreated and reviled. And when we false, face false accusations, we are called to commend the gospel with a response of love and kindness and humility and joy and unwavering confidence in the truth of Christ. The third point then this morning, commending the gospel when you are as unknown yet well-known. Paul moves to the next contrast, which describes his ministry. He often is taken lightly or treated as if he's nothing, yet he knows that he is well-known by God. Of all the human beings who have walked the face of the earth in the day of Paul, no one deserved more recognition and honor than the great apostle. Not only was he chosen by God to be one of the select few who would be the foundation stones of Christ's church, he also received a personal visit from the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was uniquely commissioned and instructed by the Lord himself. In fact, he was even taken up to heaven. He says he doesn't know whether by bo in the body or in a vision, but he was taken up into heaven and given a vision of heaven to see things, as he says, which a man is not permitted to speak. That's 2 Corinthians 12. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And he's the, most, he's the one most responsible for the spread of Christianity in history. He was probably, the, my opinion at least, the greatest Christian who ever lived. He, of all men, was worthy of recognition and honor and respect. And yet... Though today he is one of the most well-known men of the ancient world, at the time he lived, he was usually treated as a nobody. Speaking of the way in which he was treated in which he was treated in 1 Corinthians 4, he describes himself and the other apostles as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. 
We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Even many of the Christians gave him little recognition. The Corinthian church to whom this letter was written was failing to recognize him as deserving much respect or obedience. That's one of the reasons he wrote this letter. And when he was on trial in Rome at the very end of his life for preaching the gospel, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4 of his friends that they all deserted him. Don't you hate it when people treat you like nothing? When they act as if you're not even there? When they treat you as if you're completely irrelevant? But when Paul was treated like a nobody, he never forgot that he was somebody to God. Though he was unknown in the world, he knew he was well known to the one who had chosen him in Christ before the foundation of the world. And this confidence in the face of rejection that, that his knowledge of God's knowledge of him had produced was a beautiful advertisement for the truth and the power of the gospel. And the same is true for us. You see, our Heavenly Father knew you before he formed you in the womb. He knows everything about you. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows when you go out and when you lie down. He is completely familiar with all of your ways. He even knows your thoughts. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. No matter what this world thinks of you, you are still well-known and well-loved by your Abba Father. The fourth point this morning. Paul talks about being commending the gospel as dying and yet behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. So here he talks about dying but still living. You see, though from a human perspective, it frequently looks in the story of the New Testament like Paul is going down in defeat because of all this opposition that he faces. He keeps hanging on. Remember what he said just two chapters ago in 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, Satan wants us to believe that the cross will end in death, not in resurrected glory. But we know better. We know from Christ that the cross will lead ultimately to resurrected glory. Paul is again following the pattern of Jesus, you see. He understands that he lives in the state of dying. But while he is dying, Christ is coming more and more to life in him. All followers of Christ are called to die every day. 
That is what it means to carry our crosses daily and to lose our lives for Christ. This is what it means to die for my, to die to myself and so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus said that the secret to saving your life is losing it. If we cling to our lives in this world and fail to trust the Lord enough to let them go, then we end up losing them. Also, when folks who are watching our lives see that we're not daunted by setbacks, when they see that suffering doesn't embitter us, when they see that our happiness is based not on things going our way, when they see that there's something that holds us up, even in the midst of disappointments and burdens, then we commend the gospel to them. We show them that there's something bigger than the light and momentary trials that the world gets so bent out of shape over. The second little phrase in this verse, in 9b, punished yet not killed. I want to make a comment about the punishment that Paul's referring to in this verse is the Greek word for parental discipline and training. It's not, you know, like punishment of justice, but a punishment of love. Paul is saying that though God disciplines him, it it doesn't kill him. It doesn't even damage him. It actually gives him life. Like everybody else, we experience lots of troubles, but it doesn't get the better of us. We know what the troubles are for and who sends them and that they're temporary and that he is with us in the midst of them so they don't overwhelm us. The fifth point of the sixth from verse 10, commending the gospel as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Perhaps this is the strangest paradox of all the ones that Paul talks about. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He doesn't seem to be talking about that, you know, we're either sorrowful or rejoicing, even that we're sometimes sorrowful and sometimes rejoicing. Strangely enough, he seems to be saying that we have sorrow and joy at the same time. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. No matter how much we would prefer to be happy, happy, happy all the time, there is definitely a godly sorrow. In fact, there's a number of different kinds of godly sorrow in the scriptures. There is the godly sorrow of repentance, where we have sorrow over our sins. There's the sorrow of compassion, when we weep with those who weep. There's the sorrow of sadness over the sins of others. Like when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem because of the refusal to accept him. There's the sorrow of losing a loved one or having to say a hard goodbye. Actually, each of us has plenty of fuel for godly sorrow to keep us legitimately sorrowful constantly. In fact, I think most of us don't have enough godly sorrow. 
we have a defense mechanism because it hurts too much. We close our hearts because we don't want to let in any more sorrow lest it overwhelm us. Now, not all sorrow is godly, of course. Many things make us sad which shouldn't make us sad. Like when we don't like the way that we look. Or when someone else has something we wish we had. Or when we don't get the attention and admiration that we would like. We are commanded to rejoice always and in all things. In spite of all the things that legitimately make us sad, the good news is more good than the bad news is bad. Our friend is far bigger than our enemy. (coughs) And that's enough to make us joyful even when we're weeping. See if I can make this all the way through. The last point, number six. Paul talks about commending the gospel as poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. This is my favorite of all of them. Paul had no money. His friends had to send him gifts so he could live. He spent a lot of time in prison. He had no wife, apparently no children. Though he labored endlessly for the gospel, he didn't even receive enough support to pay his bills. That's why he often had to take take time away from the ministry to make tents in order to support himself. He knew hunger and thirst, cold and exposure, and other things commonly associated with poverty. And yet, Paul was rich, spectacularly rich, among the richest people on earth. First of all, he possessed the most valuable treasure the world has ever known, namely the pearl of great price. He tells us how he and other believers as well acquired this treasure. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, coming up, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Second, along with this pearl that he had, that he had, Acquired, he also possessed everything else in the world. As it says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Included in this list of all things is the world, life, death, Things present, things to come. That's from a similar list in 1 Corinthians 3. These are really big things. Things that anyone would love to possess. And they belong to Paul. He had nothing. He possessed everything. And Paul was so rich that he was able to make others rich as well. He made them rich by giving them Jesus Christ. He was poor 
yet making many rich. When a person who when a person who apparently has nothing keeps giving and giving and giving, it becomes apparent that the person has a storehouse you cannot see. And that's the way it was for Paul. And this is how it must be for God's people. If you have Jesus Christ, then you have a storehouse the world cannot see. And so it is that Paul and all of Christ's people, we live lives of paradox. This is why we're so out of step with the world. This is why they think we're weird. Based on the normal pattern of the world, we are so out of step. We have something in our lives which changes the way we think and act. We're kind to people who are rude to us. We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We don't slam people behind their backs. We have no patience for treating women as sexual objects. We won't cheat people, even our enemies. We are compassionate toward people no one else cares about. Not even strangers. We are quick to accept blame for things. We're worried about guarding our own hearts, not judging other people's hearts. We love the Bible. We love going to church and singing God's praises. And the world thinks we're so strange. Johnny. Where's Johnny? Now that may sound like a strange ball. It looks just like a normal ball. But it's not. There's something very different about this ball. It acts and sounds different because there's another ball inside of it. Just like for us, we act and sound different because there's another person inside of us. And just as you can't see the ball inside the ball, people can't see the other person who resides in us. But you, they can still tell by the fact that the ball doesn't act the way it's, most balls do. It does funny things. It does things that we don't understand. But it's because of the person inside who's making the outside different. And so it keeps doing things you don't expect. It, the physics involved in this ball are different than the physics involved in other balls. And I think it's very similar to the way it, it gives us a glimpse of how for a believer we have something else inside of us that people can't see. And it changes, it makes people say, this is a weird ball, I don't like using this ball. Because we do unexpected things. And that, when we are different in that way, that's what commends the gospel. That's what calls people's attention to say, what is different about this person? How come this person acts so differently than everybody else? And we commend the gospel. Of course, 
we do it very imperfectly. And when our lives are a violation of these things that Paul's talking about, then we have a bad effect on the gospel. That is, we make the gospel look bad. We make Jesus look powerless, maybe, or, or twisted. And, uh, but it is, it is by the power of God within us that our lives are transformed. And when our lives are transformed, people see the effect of Christ upon us and upon the way that we treat others in the world. And they can see that it's different. And as God gives them the hunger, they might be drawn to the one who is in us, who makes us different. Now we come to the table of our Lord, where we celebrate Christ, the one who came, and the one who died, and the one who ascended who was raised from the dead and the one who was ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. But he also from there poured out his Holy Spirit so that Christ now resides in us through the Spirit. Though he's hidden. There was one time where you could see him face to face. Now he's hidden. Colossians 3 says he's hidden. And Even in us, he's hidden. People can't see, but they can see the effect by the way that we live, by the way that we act, by the sound. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving yourself to us. And Lord, we know that if we act just like the rest of the world... We're not doing anyone any good. They need to see Christ. They need to see Christ in his people. So, O Lord, fill us so that we can honestly say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And use us, O Lord, though we are inadequate and incompetent for these things by the power of your spirit use us to have an effect on others for Christ thank you now for this table and for the chance to celebrate the gift of Christ and his atoning work on the cross how he took the weight of our sin upon himself so that we could be set free. May we, O oh Lord, celebrate together with joy, with humility, with gratitude what he has done. We pray in his precious name. Amen.